The Carleton College Convocation Program is a weekly lecture series that brings fresh insights and perspectives from experts in a variety of fields. The program has a rich history dating back several decades. The selected convocation speakers assist the liberal arts mission of centering thoughtful conversations within education and beyond. today, especially being so cold. My name is Hala Shabaita, and I'm an international student from Palestine. Um, I'm a political science and international relations major from the class of 2024. Um, it is my honor to introduce our speaker for this week's convocation, our very own Liz Frost from the Carleton College class of 1999. Um, a passionate and dedicated lawyer based in Washington, D.C., Liz has dedicated her career to the areas of constitutional and election law with a profound focus on protecting and defending voting rights. In the pivotal 2020 election cycle, Liz worked tirelessly to safeguard the voting rights of millions of Americans amidst the challenges posed by the pandemic. She managed a coordinated defense against unprecedented attacks on democracy, where baseless claims against um, baseless claims sought to cast doubt on the outcomes of the presidential election. In 2021, Liz, along with her colleagues, established the largest American democracy-focused law firm with a noble mission to empower progressives to drive positive change and, most importantly, protect and promote voting rights. Serving as the chair of litigation, Liz continues to fight on the front lines to ensure the right to vote is not only protected, but expanded for all. As someone who has a deep appreciation for the diversity in US society, from diversity in culture, race, language, family history, personal stories, and even citizenship status, I find Liz's work especially interesting. Her dedication to safeguarding the democratic process aligns with my own aspirations in the realm of human rights and immigration law. The challenges to democracy that Liz will discuss today are not just theoretical for me, they are critical issues that touch the core of my personal and social life, as well as my academic and future professional interests. Although I can't vote in this country yet, um, one day when I gain the right to vote, I will remember Liz and her tireless efforts to protect uh, my voting rights. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming back Liz Frost to our campus. Hi, everyone. It's really wonderful to be back, and thank you so much, Hala, for that Wonderful introduction, um, was really touching, it meant a lot to me. Um, I am having, I think, probably a somewhat out-of-body experience, which I imagine is true of a lot of alums that come back. I think you're all real, but it's also possible I'm having another one of those dreams that I've had for years since I've left, where I'm back and I'm having to take a test in a class I forgot I signed up for, give a presentation on an issue, I know nothing about. Um, to be fair, I probably have those dreams more than most because when I was here, I did forget um, that I had signed up for a class until the end of the quarter when I got my report card. 
and there was an F in guitar. It turns out if you never go and show everyone how wonderful you are at guitar, you get an F. Um, I'm not sure it would have gone so much better for me if I'd actually gone, um, but <laughs> there you go. Um, so now that you have that data point about me, it may not surprise you to learn I never thought I would be a lawyer. And if you had told senior year me that someday I would be running the litigation practice of the nation's largest pro-democracy law firm involved in almost all of the high-profile redistricting and voting rights cases in the country, I would have thought you didn't know me very well and your prognostication skills need quite a bit of work. Um, so how did I get here? Well, I was an English major um, and I use a lot of what I learned daily. I write and I read for a living. I mean, you know, there's a real direct line there. Um, but I also was always really interested in the systems that we lived in and in issues of inequity. And that interest led me to take a lot of political science classes when I was here, including in particular with an extraordinary professor named Roy Grow. Roy was kind, he was adventurous, he was curious and brilliant, and he was a huge champion of students finding their own way and learning through experience. I went on the China program with Roy and I remember exactly where we were standing in Beijing when he gave me a piece of advice that I later learned he gave to so many students. And it was, promise me, when you graduate, you will spend at least a few years taking risks, trying to find out who you are, what you wanna do, if your first job is your last job, or even an obvious stepping stone to that last job, it probably won't be your right job. This was incredibly welcome advice to me, obviously. <laughs> Yours truly with the scarlet F in guitar, um, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so when I graduated, I spent some time wandering in the Career Center a couple weeks before and found out that I could get a work visa in Ireland. And I thought, Ireland, that sounds cool. So I moved to Ireland, I worked in a hostel, I worked in an art school, and when I came back, my uncle, who was a uh, criminal attorney with a solo practice, who had just landed, um, uh, sometimes private attorneys take on public defense work through what's called the CJA system, and he'd just been assigned a juvenile murder case, a very high profile juvenile murder case. And I don't know if he really needed the help, but he'd said, you know, you don't know what you're gonna do, why don't you spend the summer helping me out? And I said, sure thinking it would just be another temporary experience. But the work really spoke to me. And learning about the criminal justice system, it really spoke to me. And when that summer was over, I continued to work in criminal law. I actually ended up getting my private investigator's license and I had my own little PI business. I was a criminal defense investigator for several years. And the last job I had before I went to law school um, was in the juvenile investigations unit of a public defender agency in my hometown of Seattle. And that drove me to law school and you're like, you're probably thinking, oh, so you're gonna be a criminal lawyer. No, <laughs> I didn't think I was gonna be a criminal lawyer even at that point. I thought, what I really want, working with the juveniles in Seattle really drove home. I mean, you know it, but you don't know it until you see it, the just systemic inequities in the system and the way that we were failing these children over and over and over again. 
And what I really wanted was a really good civics education. I thought, I will go to law school, I will understand how our government works, I will understand how our legal system works, and I will find a place, I thought probably in policy work, where I can make a difference. And then two things happened. The first is, I really loved law school. <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to say it because it's such an unpopular opinion. I would give it 10 out of 10, like no question. Uh, and so I think what I really liked again is it was sort of like English classes, right? The close reading, the taking opinions apart, the putting them back together to try and build something new. The other thing that happened is I uh, got lucky enough to get an internship with my House of Representatives, my home state. And I worked for the nonpartisan legal counsel. And my law school actually is on the quarter system, like Carleton, and Washington State's short session ran like exactly neatly in that quarter system. So I got to be there from opening gavel to signy die. I did not sleep for a minute, and I loved every second of it. And it, one of the things I got to do was help legislators write laws. And one of the things that really surprised me was how many of those laws came from phone calls from constituents and how much more interaction there was going on between these local politicians and the people who they served. And it just became so obvious to me that voting is the gateway right. Without it, all other rights are illusory. Now, I obviously didn't say this first. The Supreme Court said this in the late 1800s. Uh, the right to vote is fundamental. It's actually not explicit in our Constitution, but it's fundamental because it's preservative of all rights. So I came out of that internship and I said, you know what? I'm going to be an elections lawyer. I'm going to work in voting law. Um, it took me many more stops <laughs> to actually get to that job. Um, but eventually, I joined a practice in Washington, D.C., right as the field of election litigation was starting to really expand. So what does my practice do? I'm a litigator. I'm the type of lawyer that shows up in courtrooms, and I run our firm's litigation practice. Right now, we have about 35 lawyers um, who do litigation. We have about the same number that do all other kinds of law other than litigation. Um, most of our litigation is related to voting rights and redistricting work. As I stand here today, I actually haven't checked the docket. So my numbers are right unless we got a decision in a case that was supposed to come out this morning. We'll see. As I stand here today, we have 48 active voting and election cases in 19 different state, states right now, uh, state and federal court across the country. And this is the only the first month of a presidential election year. Election years get even busier. Most litigators don't spend a ton of time in trial, and most litigation doesn't move particularly quickly. I don't know if you all still read Bleak House for days on end here, but you know, it's not too far off of some lawyer's experience, I think. Um, our practice is a big exception to that rule. Uh, one election year is like five, maybe more, of normal trial practice, because you have an election date, the election's gonna happen on that date, and every minute, every hour until then, that's your chance to try and make sure that, that access is available to make, try and make sure that people are going to be able to participate in that election. So it's frenetic, demanding, and extremely fast-paced, even in what we would consider a relatively calm year. 2020, of course, put that all to shame. Um, 
we started that year, like everyone, thinking it was going to be a year like other years we lived before. And of course, the first thing that happened is the pandemic. And the shutdowns that started in March, which to an election lawyer is like right before some of the, the states start holding their primary elections. And the states had to figure out, some states were largely vote by mail states, but not many. They had to figure out how they were going to adjust. This is actually the first time in the country's history that they had to run a presidential election during a pandemic. So our client's immediate concern was to protect the millions of voters who were turning to mail voting to keep themselves safe in the pandemic. This is pre-vaccines. It was a very scary time. We had significant concerns because, well, I love mail voting, okay? Mail voting is great. It can increase turnout and facilitate access to voting, but it also typically tends to require voters to jump through more hoops before their ballots will be counted. The two areas where male voters, and as I say male voters throughout this talk, I'm talking M-A-I-L, just so we're clear, two areas where male voters are more likely to run into issues with getting their ballot counted are when their state has laws that either require their signature on their ballot envelope match the signature on file for the voter, or it'll be rejected, and when their state requires that their ballot be received by election day not just postmarked by election day in order to count. We had done some litigation over signature laws, but that stepped up. And we also started doing litigation over election day receipt deadlines. Um, particularly given the delays we were seeing in the Postal Service, we were quite concerned. And there was a very big case in Wisconsin that because of our litigation efforts, 80,000 ballots that would have otherwise been rejected in the presidential primary were counted. At the same time that we were filing these lawsuits to try and protect voters, uh, there was also a series of lawsuits being filed by other groups trying to shut down or curtail mail voting completely. We would intervene in those lawsuits to help the states defend on behalf of our clients. So we were fighting on several fronts, both affirmative and defensive, um, throughout the, the 2020 election leading up to November. Now, on November 7th, the Associated Press called the presidential election for Joe Biden. Um, I should tell you that we do a lot of recount work. And in fact, we were um, engaged by the Biden campaign that year to do any recount work that might come up. When a, campaign, when a campaign calls one of my lawyers to engage them for a recount, if they are not within a fraction of a point, we tell them to save their money. They almost certainly don't have a chance. Very little moves in recounts. And that's because American elections can feel Byzantine on many fronts, but they are very good at counting ballots. It's only when the margins get really incredibly close that mistakes can be made that potentially make a difference. The 2020 presidential election was not close. Um, obviously, Biden won the popular vote by over 7 million votes, but of course, in our system, more importantly, he won the electoral college uh, by a wide margin as well. He would have had to have succeeded in recounts in several different states that were really not in recount territory. So the election should have been over, but as we all know, it wasn't. Um, there were 95 additional lawsuits filed from the time the election was called to January 6th. 75 of those concerned the presidential election and were filed in only eight states, two actually here in Minnesota. 
Lawyers at my firm were involved in most of those cases defending the election. And in the end, my team won more than 60 lawsuits brought by Trump and his allies in the aftermath of the election. And that experience is what led us to launch our pro-democracy law firm in September of 2021. So many of you now have grown up in what I think of as sort of the era of voting litigation. But when I graduated in 1999, my practice didn't exist. And I think most lawyers would have thought it would never exist in, a, in the future in America. Um, if I had been so inclined to try and map out my future brick by brick, this work I do now would have been an option. In fact, before 2000, lawyers were not regularly involved in election litigation at all, even recounts. That changed with Bush v. Gore, which of course itself began as a recount. And the practice that I now chair has its roots in recount litigation. We still do recounts, but our voting rights practice really grew out of what we learned doing recounts. Recount lawyers spend hours, days, weeks sometimes sitting in rooms, usually in large folding tables with lots of people, staring at ballots as people decide whether they should count or not. A lot of those decisions are made based on pre-existing state laws. And one of the things that you learn as you sit in those rooms watching this happen is that some state laws that may seem on their face to be merely administrative actually have the effect of causing real ballots cast by real voters to be rejected. As we like to see, say in our practice, every ballot tells a story. I remember a case I had in Arizona where we were challenging Arizona's repeal of a law that allowed third parties to help people deliver their ballots to election officials so they can be counted. And um, one of the voters involved in that case was a man named Victor for whom voting was extremely important and he had never missed an election until the year when he had emergency heart surgery. And I am not kidding you, when he is in getting ready to be wheeled into the operation room, he is filling out his absentee ballot, he hands it to a nurse, she promises him she will take it, and then she realizes she can't because it is now a crime for her to deliver his ballot. Now, the rejection of that ballot tells a story as well about the accessibility of a state's elections. This is a lesson that we've learned all over the country, including here in Minnesota. Lawyers in my firm represented former Democratic Senator Al Franken in the Franken-Coleman recounts in 2008. That initial count had Franken down by 215, which under Minnesota law triggered a mandatory recount. In the course of the recount, it was discovered that over 900 absentee ballots had been wrongfully rejected. And once those were counted, Franken won by 225 votes, 0.01% of the vote. Now, the events that I just described took eight months to play out. It was the longest recount in American history. There's a book about it that's quite good. It's called This Is Not Florida. And one of the uh, premises of that is that the Minnesota courts were extremely careful and thoughtful through the whole process. Uh, the out-of-state lawyers that worked on that case actually ended up paying income taxes in Minnesota that year because it took them so long to litigate that case. Now, one of the things that came up involved the ballots of many Carleton students that were rejected for address issues. 
So these students were sending in their ballots, and on their ballot envelope, they would write 1 North College Street as their return address. And those ballots were getting rejected because they didn't have the street address and room of their dorm number. Now, I don't know about you guys. I lived in First Burton, called it the highway when I was here. I don't know if people still call it that. But I had no idea what the address was to Burton. So I'm sure my ballot would have been among those rejected. This is not an anomaly. This is an example of a type of election administration law that can have serious ramifications for counting ballots. And not just for counting ballots, but actually for voter participation in the first place. Political scientists will tell you, with each new complexity that a law imposes on voter registration or voting, no matter how small it may seem, some voters will be excluded from the process as a result. And it is more likely to be voters with less resources, like young voters, and voters from communities that bear the burdens of systemic discrimination, which manifests itself in all kinds of ways that make it harder to overcome additional hurdles to voting successfully. A lot of my firm's voting rights litigation is centered around challenging laws like this. So what are these laws and how do they make it harder to vote? I mentioned signature matching a little bit ago because it's actually one of the most common reasons that people have their ballots rejected. Now, not all states have mail voting, but those that do, um, many, not all, have a signature matching regime of some sort. They vary in different ways, but usually the bottom line is when your ballot comes in, you've signed some kind of a certification on the outer envelope, and an election official will compare it to one or more sample signatures they have for you on file. Now, if you had taken Roy Groh's political science courses, one of the things you would have heard from him was the importance of trying to understand the assumptions that underlie a person's position on an issue, rather than focusing exclusively on the argument you hear coming out of their mouth. Roy stressed that if you took the time to figure out a person's driving assumptions, you will better understand their positions and be better equipped to counter them or even persuade them. So when people justify signature matching laws, they usually say it is necessary or useful for security. That is the assumption that they will tell you that justifies the law. This has some intuitive appeal, right? I mean, for sure it does. But sometimes intuition is wrong. And when we dig deeper here, this assumption falls apart. Experts will tell you, signature verification is incredibly difficult to do with any kind of accuracy, even under the best conditions. Experts in this field train for years. They do all kinds of testing. And even then, they need a lot of recent signature examples. Sometimes they say 20 or 30 that they know were done by the person, that they were done under similar conditions, and that were done recently. They need a lot of time to compare, sometimes hours for one signature. They need special equipment, magnification, lighting, all that stuff. How do election officials do it? I mean, by necessity, it's not like they're setting out to do it wrong, but they're in the middle of a crazy election and they have thousands of ballots coming in the door. They may get an hour or two of training, if any. Um, they are rarely tested on it. And they might have an exemplar, a couple exemplars, they don't have the special equipment, and they have to do matches of thousands of signatures a day. They are terrible at it. 
it is far more likely that they will mistake a valid signature and call it fraudulent than actually identify fraud using this. In fact, if they identify fraud, it's probably just a lucky accident. They might as well just call, pull the ballot out of a basket. So why is it so hard? Well, there's just a huge amount of variation in signatures that can look like meaningful differences, even to the trained eye. Here's a couple common examples that may affect almost nearly everyone in this room. If you registered to vote at the DMV, um, you probably gave your signature to the DMV on an electric stylus pad. When you sign your ballot, you are signing it on paper on a hard surface with pen. That difference alone can make an expert unable to accurately match your signature. If you're under 30, your signature is more likely to vary, both because your, your signatures are still sort of coalescing, but also because people aren't using handwriting or cursive as much anywhere, anymore. And this is a real problem. Young voters' ballots get tossed more for signature matching for, for this reason. But before the over 30s get too confident, older voters are also at risk because of health issues like arthritis and tremors, but also because, because they don't move as often. The election officials have less examples of their signature to compare to, and they're often older examples, and signatures do change over time. Add on to that, several studies have shown very disturbing racial disparities in signature matching. Um, Washington State, my home state, which is an almost universal vote by mail state, a 2020 study found that Latino voters' ballots are more than four times um, more likely to be rejected for signature matching issues than white voters. A similar study of the Florida primary the same year found that black and Latino voters were two times more likely to be rejected. And Wisconsin, which as everyone knows, saw a relatively close election in 2020, 10,000 black voters' ballots were rejected. 10,000. Another reason why signature matching is so ineffective in what it's supposed to do, that is keep our elections secure from fraud, is that there's almost no voter fraud to begin with. And we know this because there's been an enormous amount of research, including done by conservative organizations like the Heritage Foundation, the National Republican Lawyers Association that have been looking for fraud. Over and over again, the conclusion really is that fraud is exceedingly rare. So when we tell an election official you are matching signatures to catch fraudulent ballots. We are asking them to find a needle in a field of haystacks when there may not be any needle to find. The number of ballots invalidated using signature matching far exceeds any number of fraudulent ballots. All or nearly all of those ballots are almost certainly cast by real voters. At the end of the day, laws like these are much more likely to change election results in a close election than voter fraud. So in 2020, both the pre-election and post-election arguments we heard from people who were trying to, to collapse mail voting and challenge the election was that it was necessary because mail voting was susceptible to fraud. But when you make an allegation in court, you have to prove it. And repeatedly, courts across the country found that the people challenging the election based on fraud had no evidence to support their claims. In that sense, the election deniers really took a shellacking in court that year. And I think in response to that, we are now seeing in some corners the justification for restrictive voting laws to change. Certainly, some people are still out there saying voter fraud. But what we are starting to see instead is people saying that ballots should be 
discarded, not because anyone says they're fraudulent. I'm not saying fraud, Your Honor. We've heard a lot of this recently in courts. But because they claim the ballots are unlawful. Now, I put that in air quotes because more and more what is being described as an unlawful ballot are ballots cast by voters who just don't successfully jump through a series of layered legal hoops in order for them to be counted. So for example, we have a case right now in Montana over a recently passed law that on its face appears to make it a crime to knowingly have more than one voter registration. Just to make sure you understand what I'm saying, it's not that it makes it a crime to vote twice. And no one's saying these people are intending to vote twice or that they want to vote twice, and there's lots of safeguards um, to keep that from happening. It is simply being registered somewhere else uh, with your prior registration never being canceled. Probably hundreds of thousands of Americans have more than one registration. Um, moving doesn't automatically cancel your voter registration. It's not even clear in a lot of places how you would cancel your voter registration. There's actually a whole bunch of complex federal laws that keep states from canceling federal, uh, your voter registration in certain scenarios. So it's like a very sort of labyrinth thing that people don't go through. And this is because voter registration is highly localized. Um, and you know, in a lot of places, it's not clear you could do this. So can you guess who is more likely to have more than one voter registration? People who move frequently, young people, people who rent or less financially secure. There is no problem this law is solving for. There are a lot of safeguards that protect against this. But of course, the threat of criminal penalties will keep some from voting all together. And when we hear this change in the rhetoric, from fraudulent to now the unlawful, where unlawful means whatever we say it means, it begs the question of whether the claim that everyone was so concerned about fraud was really the true underlying assumption behind those arguments or if it was something else. Before I finish, I wanna share a few additional things I've learned about voting, often from working with really smart political scientists. That's one of the joys of my job is I get to work with a lot of expert witnesses who teach me a lot of things I never knew before. Um, first, voting is a habit. Once you vote, you are more likely to vote again. At the same time, if you encounter difficulties, you're also less likely to try again. This is one of the many reasons that we worry so much about laws that target younger and new voters, because it threatens to cut off voting as a habit before it even begins. Second, political scientists, and I find this very interesting. I don't know if you'll find it as interesting as I did, but I'm here, so I'll tell you about it. Um, they've learned that most voters don't learn how to navigate the voting process from election officials or their government, but instead from word of mouth in their own communities. This is another reason why I say affluent home-owning communities are more regular voters. Because if I'm out walking my dog and run into Bob, and he says, oh, did you know they closed our polling place, and now it's, you know, a block down the road, or now it's not opening till noon, I'm more likely to navigate um, the election successfully, particularly when there are shifts. This is a really big deal. And shifts, by the way, every time you condense a polling place, you move a polling place, you change something from the way it was before, some number of voters fall off. This is why it is so important, not only that you vote, but that you talk to other people about it. 
and not just about the issues, but about the process itself. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and say that voting is the only tool to protect democracy and fight for progress. It's not. But if you're a young person or from a community that has historically been marginalized in this country, your right to vote is under attack precisely because it is one of the most powerful tools at your disposal to bring about change. And I can tell you in my business, we have a lot of disappointments. And I, I mean, maybe this is true of a lot of lawyers, I hate losing. I hate losing. And I really hate losing in this space. I feel like I've failed the voters. I have all kinds of like, you know, personal crises of consciousness, wondering if maybe someone else should be doing this. Um, in those moments, I consistently remind myself that we stand on the shoulders of giants. In my field, that includes civil rights lawyers who for decades and longer went into courtrooms to argue for the protection of basic rights in front of a hostile judiciary without any realistic hope that they would obtain judgments in their favor. But they still fought. There is a real value in that fight alone. But you know what? Sometimes they won. And it changed so much for so many for generations. So I fight for them. And when I vote, I vote not just for me and for us, but also for them. And when I'm tired, I remember them and I take strength from them to keep moving forward. We don't win every case that we bring, but we do win more than is expected. I'll give you a couple recent examples. In 2022, when Reverend Raphael Warnock was facing off in a runoff election, the results of which would determine if he would become the first black senator from Georgia, the Georgia Secretary of State announced he would not offer weekend voting on the Saturday after Thanksgiving, as Georgia had in the past. This, everyone's model said this was going to be a huge turnout day. And we thought the Secretary's position was not consistent with Georgia law, and so we sued him. We brought the case in Georgia State Court. Many court watchers, it was all over Twitter, we saw so many comments, um, said so we did not have a chance. But you know what? We won in the trial court. We won in the Court of Appeals. We won in the Georgia Supreme Court. And because of that, more Georgians were able to vote. And in the end, Reverend Warnock was elected making history. And he is a wonderful senator. We also had a case in the United States Supreme Court this year. Well, we actually had two. One of them involved Alabama's congressional redistricting map. And one involved the so-called state legislator doctrine, which threatened to make it impossible for state courts to protect voting rights, even under their own constitutions. The obituaries for both of those cases were written repeatedly, and we won them both as well. For the first time, Alabama will have two congressional districts where black voters will be able to elect their candidates of choice. State Supreme Courts can continue to protect voting rights consistent with their own state constitutions, including by providing stronger protections under the federal constitution than those federal judges may find. Change is really hard, and it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of consistent effort, and it is often one step forward and two steps back. But history has shown us that roadblocks to voting are put up most enthusiastically when there is a real threat of real change. 
Take this moment as a challenge. Educate yourself, educate others in your community, not just about the issues, but the mechanics of voting. And be alert for places where a seemingly small thing could be the difference between your ballot being counted and it being rejected. Do not reward those who think they can put up so many hurdles that you stop trying to go over them or around them. Hidden threats become far less effective when your eyes are wide open. Thank you so much for letting me come talk to you guys today. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you very, very much, Liz. That was excellent. And we're going to get to question and answer in just a second. So get those hands ready. Get those questions ready. Uh, just an announcement or two. Next week, we will have Jaron Herman. Uh, the title of that convocation will be Embrace on Kinship. Jaron Herman is a dancer and writer who is compelled to create images of freedom. His process is supported by personal histories and social legacies of disability aesthetics that undermine notions of production in favor of welcoming. That, too, will be very interesting. We welcome you to please attend. Convo Lunch. Today we still have a few seats at the table. If you are interested in joining us for Convo Lunch, there might just be balsamic seared chicken, there might just be quinoa loaf, and there might just be key lime bars. Just saying. Please ask me afterwards if you are interested in joining us. That's enough out of me. Let's hear from you. Questions and answers. Who would like to kick us off? Good morning. Thanks very much for the talk. I'm David. I'm a civilian from here in Northfield. I wonder if you could uh, give me your uh, insights and views on the uh, 14th Amendment challenge uh, that's going to be headed its way to the Supreme Court. How do you think the court might rule and why? Yeah, so we're actually not involved in the 14th Amendment stuff. I will say that it is a space in which Litigation is always uncertain. I hazard to make any kind of guess in this space, right? Because we're talking about a part of the Constitution that hasn't been interpreted. Um, we're talking about, obviously, Supreme Court that has at times done some things that have surprised people, some things that have not surprised people. Um, it, you know, the D.C. Circuit, it looks like, is going to have some shot at this first. And I think it probably will turn to some degree on what they do. Um, that's obviously a court um, where they'll put a, you know, a lot of thought into the question. I think it's going to move really quickly, um, which I think is not something I would have said to you a week or two ago. I would have said, I think probably the courts might try and find a way to avoid it um, and just see how the primary season runs. But I just don't know. It's, it's such a co you know, collision between political concerns, legal concerns, you know, I, I'm sorry, I know it's a totally unsatisfying question. I wish I could tell you. <laughs> I wish I knew. Uh, hi, uh, my name is George, I'm a current student. How much variation have you noticed across the federal judiciary and state level judges after like the Shelby ruling in 2013 and recent rulings from the Supreme Court stating that gerrymandering is political and weakening voting protections as a whole? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say that I think that we have seen more variation in the way that judges have been treating these issues than I think we initially expected to. Um, you know, Section 2 has survived so far, 
And we've seen judges, even judges that I think initially, just looking at their profile, you might think are not willing to um, stick their neck out on these issues, have some of them have. Now, not all of them have, but I think a good example of this is, is some of the recent redistricting cases where um, that have you know gone the way that redistricting works usually. Now, it's actually it's there's some complexities in exactly what kind of claim you bring. But a lot of these redistricting cases are actually heard by three judges in the first instance down below. It's a special creation of federal law that allows for certain redistricting cases and other certain other types of cases to be heard by, it's a district court, but they call it a three-judge panel. And then it actually goes straight up to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court has to hear these kinds of redistricting cases. It's one of the few cases they can't turn away. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts has at times complained a little bit about this. <laughs> Just, they got to they gotta, they gotta hear them. Um, in both Alabama and Georgia, the recent redistricting cases, the panels, I think, were almost exclusive. There might have been one judge who was not either a Trump-appointed or a Republican-appointed judge. And were one of the panels, that, you know, I think most people seeing the panel drawn thought there's just no way that um, they're going to find a violation of law here. And they did. And they, if, those opinions are really interesting, and they're really worth reading if you like to read very long things, um, because they are often 150, 200, 250 pages long, and they go through the evidence bit by bit by bit. And this is one of these places where, when I say the fight is important, bringing your best evidence to the court, you just never know what's going to happen. But if you put it, if you put your best evidence in front of them, and you make it as hard as possible to rule against the voters, you know, you, you sometimes you'll surprise yourself, you'll sometimes you'll surprise people out there. So I would say we've seen more protection of voting rights than I think people anticipated after Shelby County. Um, we've seen several opinions from courts that I think people did not anticipate would protect voting rights. And one of the things actually that um, one of my partners created in 2020 when we were doing the post-election litigation, first on Twitter he was putting up this sort of daily number counting of how many live post-election cases there were and how many we'd won so far, just sort of to keep a count. And he ended up creating a website called Democracy Docket. And that website we've since expanded and now has, it's like a clearinghouse for all voting-related litigation. So it has like landing pages that will tell you kind of what these cases are about, but then it also has, um, you can click through to like all of the opinions and filings in these cases. So when I say, it's, it's, I think those opinions, those redistricting opinions in particular, are quite interesting because they really go through bit by bit by bit all of the evidence that these lines are being drawn, um, you know, at the end of the day for reasons that can't be sustained under the law. And I mean, I think the Alabama victory is like huge, right? It's historic and um, the people of Alabama, I think, are going to have a very different delegation than they had in the past as a result, which is really exciting. Yeah, thank you very much for coming back to Carlton and giving the talk. Um, I believe that in order to truly advocate for the integrity of the voting system and like truly and objectively, you have to be unbiased on its outcomes. Now, your law firm has a strong affiliation with the Democratic Party, so I have two questions. One, um, does your law firm or any of its partners give or receive financial gifts from the Democratic Party? And two, do you think that that has 
an impact on that conflict of interest on the positions you take in court or what you advocate for? Yeah, so the conflicts of interest thing is the key thing. When you work in election law, you really work on one side or the other. Because um, the issues and the candidates and the way it all works. So, you know, we are a Democratic law firm. We, are, we represent a ton of Democratic uh, election office holders. We represent a lot of Democratic campaign committees. And they are all pointed in the same direction. Now, we represent some independents, too. Um, we represent progressive groups that are uh, C3s and C4s, right, that are not partisan organizations. And we have... We have a three-pillar mission, right? And basically, in order to be a client of ours, and we turned away clients, we left most corporations behind when we started our law firm. You have to either help Democrats get elected, you have to help progressives make change, or you have to help people vote. Those are, you have to do one of the three. You don't do all three, you don't do all two. And lawyers are bound by very strict ethical rules. I mean, very strict. So within our law firm, right, when we are advocating, say, for a C3 or C4 in litigation, we are advocating for them. We're not advocating for the political party. And so I think those kinds of concerns, you know, really are um, something that we take very seriously and is, is reflected in our internal structure and in the way that we do our work. Um. So, yes, thank you again, and, and this wasn't meant to follow so directly <laughs> on that question, but, um, uh, but, it, but it does, um, which is, I, I mean, I too am curious about the partisan piece, and I ask as a longtime member of the League of Women Voters and an occasional um, officer there, which is an organization that, um, you know, holds firmly to its nonpartisan status and believes that that's what gives it its legitimacy in making arguments for expanding the vote. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think the benefits of your positioning as a partisan uh, law firm might do for you besides, you know, the fact that maybe you have to. Yeah, so it's funny. We actually have represented the League of Women Voters in several cases. And, you know, the, the League is like a lot of these C3s and these 4s, right? The C4s, they are um, aligned with voting rights. So that's where, that's the prong of the litigation that, that we work on for them. And like I said, we have, you know, we're strict sort of internal controls. We're not litigating for the Democratic Party when we're representing the League of Women Voters. Um, so a couple things. One of the things that is extremely important to me, and I think extremely important to my partners, is that corporations are not the only kinds of clients that get lawyers who are experts in what they're working on. And there's not a lot of experts in political law and election law. It's a very, very niche practice. And so I think for us to say, hey, we're either not going to work with C3s and C4s because we work with the Democrats, or we're not going to work with the Democrats or we work with C3s and C4s, is actually really sort of contrary to, I think, one of the founding assumptions and beliefs, right, of our firm, which is that for far too long, this kind of work has been done. You know, there's, and, and by the way, I'm not saying, like, obviously, there are lots of nonprofits that have done this kind of work and have done it wonderfully. But a lot of times it's done by pro bono lawyers at larger law firms who don't have the expertise, whose attention is divided, who don't understand sort of the ins and outs and the ways that legal doctrines can shift a little in this space that they maybe don't always 
shift in the same way if you're representing tele, telecom companies or something like that. So I think it's, you know, we are extremely committed to pro-democracy. And I think all of these things, frankly, are necessary in order for us to achieve that mission. Hi, thank you so much for coming. Um, my question was, this is a very fast-paced area that you mentioned you were in, and your firm is the largest in this area, and it's only 35 people. Um, so you must, how do you choose your battles here? How do you decide where to invest your efforts? And with other firms, does, does their methodology sort of, is it similar to yours, or what's the whole deal with that? Yeah, so it's a great question. So I think a lot of this grows out of the expertise, right? We can look at an issue and we have a pretty good sense of, of whether it's, a, it's one that is worth pursuing or not. It's very client driven. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We had a case in Florida in 2016 where actually a student um, at the University of Florida wrote an op-ed that talked about how the Secretary of State in Florida that year had decided that she wasn't going to put any early voting sites on Florida campuses, university and college campuses that year. Florida might be the state with the most colleges and with the largest college and university population in the country. Um, and it's, and a lot of those campuses were quite far away from places where people would engage in early voting. Florida had a historic problem with very long lines on election day. Um, so one of our clients' priorities um, saw the op-ed and called us and said, can you look into this? And if you think it's worth doing, can you call these students and, you know, we'd be interested in being involved in litigation. And so that's how it took off. And it was funny, it was like a series of weeks of emergency motions and all this kind of stuff. I flew down to Tallahassee, did an argument, and we won. We actually, our theory in that case was under the 26th Amendment and that this decision could only be justified by making it harder for young people to vote and that the plain text of the 26th Amendment prohibited that. And um, it's still to this day, the case was called, I can't remember what the case was called, um, Destner was the, but to this day, I think it's still you know, one of the strongest um, 26th Amendment decisions that, that anyone has gotten. And the result was that 60, early voting places were open on 11 college campuses in that election that year. Um, so an enormous amount of people voted as a result of that. Over here in the corner. Um, I am wondering if you can talk a little bit about Secretary of State positions and their roles here. Um, we had the opportunity to potentially have our Secretary of State come to Carleton and I was talking with students would people turn out for that? Would they be excited? And students, some of whom are in this room, were like, I don't know if people would be excited by that. And I'm just wondering what you wish we all knew about the role they play and whether or not you're in a voter-friendly state and whether you think that that role is going to be um, escalating in importance. Yeah, I mean, I think yes to all of that. I mean, it really does go to this um, hidden uh, threats or maybe the threats that people don't think about so much when they're thinking about the ways in which their voting rights can be undermined and a strong Secretary of State is really important in that regard. Um, and the other thing is Secretary of State's, you know, you have laws passed by legislators, we all know how a bill becomes a law, but Secretary of State's in most states have an enormous amount of discretion in how they implement the election laws. 
and in making those decisions can make a huge difference. I mean, like I said, in Florida, it was the Secretary of State that, that made that decision. In Georgia, it was the Secretary of State that decided not to offer Saturday voting after Thanksgiving, right? Like, these are all extremely important. And I think it's, it's definitely a race that often people don't think so much about or, they, or they're not as informed about when they go to vote. But it's one that people, people should care a lot who's running for the Secretary of State. And I mean, in Arizona, um, you know, the Democrat won, but not by a ton. And the Republican candidate was a very, very enthusiastic election denier. And that's a state, right, that is very much a purple state, that is very much a, a state full of independent voters. And the position that the Secretary of State is in in that state, right, like is really, I see it as like a firewall against the erosion of democracy. I think it matters enormously. Hello. Can you tell us a little bit about your time as a private investigator? I'm fascinated by this. I'm picturing like the good wife. I'm picturing all kinds of things and I need a couple of examples. <laughs> so I was really young. I mean, I was, I think I was like 21, 22, 23. Um, and it's funny, I'm actually in a true crime book and you know how in true crime books where they have the well in the middle of all the photographs, there's a, there's a murder case I worked on where you, you will find a photograph of 22 year old me in it um, from, from that work. So, my uncle, I mean, this is one of these things where maybe sometimes people know you better than you know yourself, even if you resist for years saying you have no idea who I am. For years had been giving me books by Jerry Spence, this famous Wyoming lawyer. Like, he really saw me as the person he thought might go into his field, and I was so uninterested and would just put them on the shelf and never read them. Eventually I read them, but it took a while. And so he brought me in actually for a case that involved a young man who um, was charged with murder. And, you know, I had never been that close to the justice system before and I spent a lot of time visiting him in jail just helping him prepare for trial right things as simple as I remember one morning um, where we had to get him shaved and get him clothes for a court appearance and just even kind of navigating that was its own you know experience and in that job I think in the first you know summer I was doing stuff like I was doing kind of that kind of stuff like helping on the office, but I, I was really interested, and I think he could see that, I think he could see that the other lawyers he started to work with were. And so, um, private lawyer, or private defense lawyers started hiring me to like, go interview witnesses, right? Go to the place where the crime happened, like walk around, take a look, does, you know, does, is there something we're missing? Are there cameras there? Go to the 7-Eleven, Ask them, do their cameras work? They never do, by the way, but you always ask. And, and in that, it's funny, right, because I think even though my career path was not a straight line, I learned so much in that job that I use every day. And a lot of that has to do with how important the facts are, how important it is to be intimately aware of them, to ask questions when things don't seem to make sense, to get to know people's stories. When I'm um, talking to a witness or a plaintiff, right, I often spend a lot of time just talking to them and starting to like, it, you know, 
try and figure out, okay, what are the themes that make them them? What are the, th you know, what are the, and then you could start to get, oh, this is the, these are the keys. This is how I'm going to tell their story to the judge, right? So it was a lot of that, honestly, a lot of being a private investigator in the, in, in the criminal defense realm when I was doing it was story gathering and was just hearing people and then taking the facts, whatever they were, unvarnished to the lawyer and saying, this is what you've got. You know, and then the lawyer would figure out, is this a, do we do a plea deal? Do we, are there certain services this client needs, right? Spending time with their families. Hi, um, this is more of a normative question rather than a legal question. Um, but I was curious what your thoughts were on how uh, colleges and universities like Carleton um, could promote voting and voting rights, both on campus and in the broader community. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think one of the things that I was surprised about when I started to get into this field was like actually how complex um, the American election system really is. And this is why I talk a little, a lot about focusing on understanding the rules. Um, I voted in Virginia and it's only recently actually that universal vote by mail has been a thing in Virginia. Um, I requested about it several years ago when I was gonna be out of the, t be out of the um, Commonwealth for something and I got the instructions and I'm an elections lawyer and I was like these are incredibly complex and I was super afraid of making an error so I mean those are things that I think figuring out ways to like educate about the process which is like kind of the less maybe um, philosophical discussions in that sense right the other thing is I have to say um, and I know no one likes to hear this, but the truth of the matter is one of the biggest threats for our elections right now is that people are afraid to volunteer for or help work in elections. And a huge part of our elections apparatus is run by volunteers. And I mean, they do God's work and it is incredibly important. And those people work so hard and young people are like a very, very well situated to do this work. And you learn a ton in the process um, so that's, I think, another thing that could be encouraged. I think we have time for one more question. This one comes from a viewer on Zoom, and they ask, what keeps you up at night about the 2024 federal elections? What doesn't? I'm a lawyer. <laughs> um, we see danger everywhere. <laughs> um, so I worry about what I just mentioned. I worry a lot about... Um, people sort of fleeing um, the, the election apparatus itself and that in a close situation, you have an election denier in a position that's making decisions and not enough, not enough sort of process to stop them. I worry that, I mean, it hasn't happened so far, right? But I worry. I worry that people think we survived 2020 and they're kind of over it and they think our system's held, so they'll hold again. And I think what the history professors and students would tell you is that often the most vulnerable time is right after you survived and everyone sort of puts down their guard again. And I mean, I, I worry that
we, this democracy, this grand exper experiment of American democracy has survived for so, for so long that we take it for granted even given what we already, what we just went through and that we don't understand that it's each of our responsibilities to maintain it. And that, you know, as John Lewis says, democracy, democracy is not a state, it's an act. And all of us bear responsibility for that. Thank you very much. On that, we need to conclude convocation. Thank you, Liz, for being here with us today. And thank you all for coming to Convocation. We'll see you next week.